<laughs> well, yeah. and Robin, uh, 2022, another big year for UB40, new singer, big arena tour. I mean, who would have thought when I first started listening to you guys 30 something years ago, like, hey, it would keep getting bigger and bigger. Did both of you know that, hey, this is going to be a 40 to 50 year band? <laughs> no. Of course not. Of course no. not. No. You know, it's like, it's like you're riding a whirlwind, isn't it? You know, you just sort of hang on and see what happens. And it yeah, just, we I- took ourselves very seriously and we, we imagined that we, it was going to be a career for us. You know, we, we didn't want to be a flash in the pan. We didn't want to last a, a couple of singles and disappear. We, we had, you know, aspirations, but nobody expects 45 years. You know, we had dreams that maybe we'd get 10 years out of it or something, you know, but 45 years is just, it is the stuff of dreams. Right. And the album and the tour, Bigger Bagger Rhythm. Am I saying that correctly? You well are. Done. That's not bad. It was a bit. It was a bit slow, but uh, it, it was. It was pretty good. We've actually. We've had, some, yeah, well, we've had some terrible pronunciations. I can do. only imagine, and it's you guys headlining with some great uh, bands on the bill. Did you know outright that you wanted to do a package tour for the states? Yeah. Well, we were talking with our agents and uh, the promoters and. And we said it'd be really nice to do that, especially for the 45th anniversary to to come and, and have a, you know, have a reggae bill, have have a bill of names that, you know, the American audience would know. Right. And, uh, yeah, we just, I mean, the agent came up with the artists. It wasn't our list of artists, but uh, we were certainly happy when it was, you know, when we were, uh, when it was suggested to us. And yeah. Maxi, of course, we know really well. Maxi Prince. Yeah, Maxi, Maxi, we've known for a long time. Right. Uh, Matt is a big part of this tour. How did Matt come onto the radar of UB40? He was the lead singer in a, a, a band that supported us for a lot of gigs. We met them at an awards ceremony in Birmingham, our hometown, because they're from Birmingham too. The band that he was in was called Kyoko. Uh, and they're a Birmingham reggae band, uh, very mixed, multiracial, you know, very similar to us. They reminded us of us as kids, you know, and uh, and when we were at the awards ceremony, they actually played one of our songs because they were the they were the band playing on the night of the awards, and they played one of our songs, um, and we just got chatting to them, and then we offered them a support slot, and they ended up doing. 40 odd shows with us mm-hmm. um throughout the uk let me stole him and yeah he was he he impressed us when we did the album bigger bagger rhythm which is a collaboration album mm-hmm. one of the tracks one of the artists we collaborated with was kyoko and we offered them a song and um when matt was recording the song in the studio i was there and uh i remember at the time thinking this kid can sing, you know, and uh, and he would be a perfect choice. If ever Duncan, my other younger brother, if ever Duncan decided not, not to uh, continue, um, he would be a great choice. And then Duncan had a stroke and decided that he didn't want to carry on anymore. Um, and so 
uh, he was the only guy we thought of. We didn't have a list, you know, we just went straight to Matt and offered him the job. And of course, he's been a fan since he was a kid. So he jumped at the chance, you know, he was, he was a bit like a, a deer in the headlights, you know, for the, uh, for the yeah. first half dozen shows, but he's very quickly become uh, very comfortable and, and confident. And um, we've just finished some uh, gigs in Holland and uh, Sweden. Mm-hmm. And he was, ju- he was just going from strength to strength. He, he was amazing. So we're really looking forward to doing, you know, a full on proper tour with him. And America will be the first one. Mm-hmm. Up to that, uh, you, you mentioned your hometown of Birmingham earlier, and I would say the average American who's really into music will think of Birmingham as where heavy metal started because of yeah. Black Sabbath and all that. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the reggae scene like when you guys were starting out in Birmingham? Well, well, the other the other big reggae band in the UK would be Steel Pulse, and they're from Birmingham too. So. Mm-hmm. You know the the uh, the pedigree of Birmingham with reggae artists is good. Uh, it, it was where we lived. The area we grew up in, which was a high immigrant area, we weren't listening to heavy metal. You know, we we weren't listening to Black Sabbath and etc. What we were hearing, the music that we heard on the streets, in the clubs, in the bars, in the youth clubs, was uh, Jamaican pop music you know, which was Scar at first, and then it became reggae. And that was, that was the music that we grew up on and loved. So, yeah, because the, because the, the um, I mean, there was a reggae band on every corner when we first started in, in the late 70s. It was uh, because the punk era had, had made the environment sort of conducive to reggae. They loved, the punks loved reggae. And Steel Pulse had the first sort of major... Uh, reggae album in the charts, number one in the charts with Handsworth Revolution. Um, and it was just a, a no-brainer, really, that we would play reggae because it's what we knew. Hmm. So neither of you were metal guys. That I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah, never well, were, I mean, we're, we're, never are. We're in a no, where, where we grew up, we just didn't hear that kind of music, you know. That wasn't the music that we were listening. The thing about Birmingham, you have to understand, is it doesn't have one sound. Mm-hmm. It's a real cultural melting pot, more so than any other city in, in the UK, I would say, mm-hmm. in that um, there are many, many bands from Birmingham. People don't realise they're from Birmingham. They know that the heavy metal scene from Birmingham, but there have been very successful uh, pop, rock, reggae. Uh, at- Duran Duran? Or- Duran Duran, Absolutely. Yeah. ELO. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that that ELO was also a Birmingham band. Jeff yeah. Lynn is an absolute Brummie. I bought his house off him. <laughs> wow, small world. So. But, yeah, we um, there, there are so many, so many from from the early day from the sixties. You know, the Move. Oh yeah, um, Roy Wood and the Move. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Roy Wood, absolute Brummie, without a doubt. Went to my school, Roy yeah. Wood. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, I guess we're, we're not talking about UB40. We're talking about the Birmingham uh, Tourism Council. Um, I, <laughs> that, that, that's what uh, we have picked up on here. So that's fantastic that all of that music came from that one place, whether or not we kind of realize that. And do both of you or either of you still call Birmingham home? 
Yeah. Yeah, we both, we both do. Well, I mean, we've moved into the outskirts, you know, the Uber suburbs, but <laughs> we're still within 10 miles of Birmingham, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, we wouldn't exist without the cultural mix that, that makes up Birmingham, you know. We, it, it informs everything we do. I don't think we could create what we've created without that, that cultural influence, you know. And, Absolutely. Uh, so we we love the we love the city, even though How it's does it compared to Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> right. uh, it's completely no, different. <laughs> I mean, you know, Birmingham's a, a blue collar city, right? You know, it's a it's a motor town. You know, so uh, it's 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 high industrial area. So if Birmingham is industrial as well, then I would say there is a similarity. Yeah, it was. It was a high industrial area. It That's was, kind yeah. of it's kind of gone now. It's turned into a services industry, yeah. um, exhibitions and all that kind of stuff. But it but it was it was built on the industrial revolution and on the motor trade, mm. like uh, like Detroit. You know, it was uh, very much a blue collar town. Detroit, another mu- musical city that changed the scape of everything. So yes. now we know if the city makes cars, the music is, is going to be pretty great. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it will be danceable as well, you know, because, <laughs> because I mean, you know, the inner city, city people, they like to go out on a Friday and Saturday night, you know, and dance and pick up girls. And that sure. was the kind of culture we come from, you know. Well, two more questions for both of you, and then you're free men, or at least free until the next journalist asks you the same exact questions that I have. <laughs> yeah, uh, awesome. <laughs> and the, the first one that I've got is, you know, looking at UB40's career, you know, 45 years or so strong, still playing arenas and big festivals and theaters everywhere around the world. Is there anything that the band hasn't accomplished that you're still hoping will one day happen? Oh, blimey. Uh, um, I, not really. Uh, we have been a, a touring, hard-working touring band, so we've pretty much gone everywhere we wanted to over the last 40 years. Uh, it's a case of going back and revisiting places. I mean, we've been, we've been to f- far away places that other bands have never been to, like Tonga and Fiji and all right. of those kind of, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so uh, maybe mainland China. It would no, be interesting. China, yeah. It would yeah. be interesting to tour mainland China, but we've, you know, we've done India, we've done Russia, uh, you know, several times. It would be, it would be great to go back to some of those places. I'd love to visit some of the uh, Eastern Asian places like Indonesia, you know, again. Um, but yeah, we've pretty much been everywhere apart from mainland China, which would be uh, interesting, I think. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the luckiest people in the world that we've actually realised our dream. You know, when we first started, we dreamed of being in a reggae band and we became the biggest reggae band in the world, you know, which is yeah. quite a massive achievement and kind of thing that you can retire on, really. Yeah, if we don't, if we don't ever do anything else, you know, we've done enough. <laughs> we're, we're happy. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think ambitions we don't really have other than to keep going as long as we can, you know? Yeah, sure. And the last thing I want to ask you about, obviously I'm a UB40 fan. Obviously I'm a Neil Diamond fan and the <laughs> red, red wine cover. 
was huge and it yeah. still is huge and being played. But I remember hearing a live album of Neil Diamonds where he started doing the song, the UB40 way. And yeah. he actually says the line with UB40, we be number one. Um, <laughs> he actually does the rap part of it. I was curious if you ever heard that and what you thought of that. Yeah, I did kind of hear it. And it, I, I thought he was, he was, uh, I think he was being a little bit sarcastic, you know, the rap, the rap thing that he did was not the original lyrics. He made his own up, you know. Right. He, red, red wine makes me feel so good, even if the words aren't understood, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff, which, uh, which I, I felt was a little bit of an insult considering the millions we earned him on that song. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's never, he's, he's, he has acknowledged it publicly and he's obviously he plays it and uh, he, he mentions us. But he's, he's never acknowledged it to us personally. And I think if someone recorded one of my songs, I'd be writing them a thank you letter, you know, and I'd, I'd want to go and shake their hand. But, uh, you know, everyone to their own. Yeah, because, you know... He's, he's kind of used to having people recording his songs and having big hits, I guess, you know. That's normal for him. But I think we, the big takeaway is he we, did we his version. He stopped doing his own original and he switched over to the UB40 version. Yeah, yeah well, it was, uh, it was a lot more successful. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we saw the jazz singer and we thought, that man needs a bit of help. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you there, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bottom line is, thank you for your time. Look forward to seeing you live in New York and just keep up that great success and hope you make it to mainland China. Well, thank that was you. Homeless. That was very that was really quick and brief. Yeah. We, we aim to be quick, painless, and positive. And I think we have okay. all those. Talking about ambitions, playing Central Park is one of them. That's not a bad gig, is it? Not a bad gig at all. And that's the gig I will probably be going to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Take care. Thank you, Darren. Cheers, Thank man. You very much. Sam, Caitlin, I am Darren Paltrowitz with The Hype Magazine. A pleasure to be speaking with both of you. Uh, unison answer here, I'm sure, but how's your day going? Sam, you go first. <laughs> it, it's, it's going extremely well. It's a beautiful semi-humid day here in New York. So uh, yeah, I'd say that's, that's reason to celebrate, right? Amen to that. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question, but to Caitlin first. Had you been to Long Island before filming the show? No, I had no business in Long Island before Bridge and Tunnel, surprisingly. Um, but yeah, now I'm, I'm pretty familiar with at least three major uh, attractions there. Lynbrook, Rockville Center, that area? Yeah. Okay. And a bunch of the malls between the two. <laughs> uh, Sam, a little different for you, grew up in Queens. A lot of people from Queens seem to have a love-hate thing with Long Island where either they were there every weekend or they go, no, I don't, I've never heard of it. Uh, in your case, which was it for you for Long Island and your upbringing? I uh, was the former. I, I was, yeah, my, my, my dad made sure we were out on Long Island every weekend, uh, especially out on the North Fork. He just wanted to like get out of Queens, get out of Astoria. Um, he, he was a mechanic. So he was like, just get me out of the shop, get me out of the fumes. So I, yeah, I grew up pretty familiar with, with Long Island and now like my siblings live out there. So, so I'm out there pretty often. <laughs> uh, Caitlin, you mentioned becoming familiar with the malls. I mean, this is not an endorsement per se, but, uh, was it 
Roosevelt Field Mall was your primary destination? Yeah, sure. Uh, to be honest, I couldn't tell you for sure. I wasn't sure where I was 90% of the time. Um, but I, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's wonderful as somebody from Long Island to be seeing the show portrayed in such a an honest way. Because growing up on Long Island, you tend to have a love-hate thing until you leave it and then you kind of realize you love it and you miss it. Uh, Sam, for you, how much work is needed for this character? Oof. Um, I guess the, the, the Long Island part was, was you know, it was, I was, a, I'm, I'm a city boy born and raised. So it was, it was interesting seeing like the suburban life of Long Island and living that and like riding your bike in the street, not worried about getting him by a car. Uh, so there was that, there was, that, that was kind of the hard part of it. And, and there's also like a different dialect out in Long Island. Um, and Long Island, as you know, is, uh, one word, uh, Long Island. so, um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it was, it was, it was tricky, you know, kind of getting out of that Brooklyn Queens vibe and, and getting into the Long Island vibe. And I, I guess only real New Yorkers could really tell a difference. Everything just sounds like New York to everybody else, but, um, yeah, trying to, trying to, trying to portray that authentic Long Island was the hard part. Everything else, the family, the, the, the passion, the photography, everything that was, that, that came easy. Uh, same question at you, Caitlin. Uh, obviously it's a character and then you also have to go, well, 1980s, was I really around then as a, as a developed human being? Not really. How much work goes into this for you versus just knowing how to do it naturally? Um, you know, it's funny, like, it's it's an accent that, like, I think I was born to do. Like, I actually think I I, I deserve to do it. Um, but it, it's, one of the, it's one of the few things I've ever done that actually just, like, I would, you, you know, like, one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I think I want to try eating olives. And your whole life, you're like, ugh. And then you have one, you're like, actually, this is great. I'm going to do this. That's kind of how this accent was for me. Like, I just decided, like, I'm gonna try this because I worked with um, Ed Burns on a movie called Summertime in like one million years ago, and mm -hmm. when I was 27, and um, it was yeah, it was kind of just like a switch that went off. I think because like Australians are such like active shit talkers, and like there's no there's no real affectation. I mean, I, I have a lot because I'm an actor and I've got a fake British accent, but like I think that. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't that hard. It was it, it, I was intimidated at the prospect of doing it again. The older you get, the more gun shy you get. But yeah, Jill Jill feels pretty familiar to me. Like I feel like all the girls that I associate, like all the girls that I'm really close to, have that same kind of energy, and I think I have that energy a bit as well. Um, what was the question? Was that did I answer? <laughs> Some, some people, when they have a role, they say, only call me, only call me Jill for the next two months, and I will not do anything that Jill would never do. And then other people go, yeah, I'll read it once or twice. I, I think I can figure this out. So I was curious if this one took a lot of work for you to play this role. I mean, luckily, Jill and I want to do a lot of the same things. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't make everyone call me Jill, but I did for the first season speak exclusively in the accent, which, which was really hard for me because I felt like a real wanker, you know, um, it was, I was just so intimidated by yeah. fucking it up that I think, um, I think honestly it lent itself to sounding better because I didn't, I mean, I don't know. It, I, I think that, um, you know, to each their own, but method acting feels feels exhausting. I don't know how anybody can take themselves seriously enough to do it, but but whatever gets you there. And after having done this accent for like well over a month in yeah. my own personal life, I do get it, but it's very hard to like take yourself seriously when you're doing it. Especially when you need to call your mum who's Australian and they're like, well, why are you talking like that? <laughs> Well, my last question for both of you, and I'll go to Sam first, is obviously Bridge and Tunnel is the best show on, on Epics. Everyone knows that. What's the second best show on, on Epics? Ooh, I really got, and this was even before Bridge and Tunnel, I, I really fell in love with Godfather of Harlem. Um, with, yeah, that's that's a really, really good show. And then, uh, <laughs> funny enough, I auditioned for uh, Billy the Kid, but I have yet to watch it. But that looks like a really good show, too. Um, so yeah, hell yeah. Godfather of Harlem, check it out. Very good show. Caitlin, before I get the boot here, your second favorite show on Epics besides Bridge and Tunnel. Oh, well, my first favorite season one of Bridge and Tunnel, second <laughs> best season two of Bridge and Tunnel. <laughs> I see what you did there. Well, either way, well done, both of you. Looking forward to whatever is next, whether it's season three, four, five, and six, or whatever it is. Keep up all the greatness. Watch your fingers. Watch it. Thanks so much. It is a pleasure to be speaking with the three of you and working the round here. Gigi, um, what familiarity, that was a bad word, familiarity did you have with Long Island before you wound up on Bridge and Tunnel? Um, none, none, absolutely none whatsoever. I'm a Miami girl, uh, very little New York experience. <laughs> Got it. And you are the second Zoom bio I've had the pleasure of interviewing. So thank you for that. Um, Erica. Your favorite, same... favorite Zoom bio. You missed. Oh, sorry. Duh. Like it goes without saying, right? <laughs> duh. Uh, Erica, same question at you. Long Island. Had you been around Long Island before winding up on this wonderful show? Not a ton. I mean, I am, I am, uh, I've been in New York for 14 years, but I came here for college. So um, I grew up in the South where, you know, obviously the Long Island accent is nowhere to be found, but I did have, I got invited by like college friends and stuff uh, to go home for Thanksgiving with them. And it was always either New Jersey or Long Island, like the people who lived nearby. So I think I got, I got a little bit of exposure through that, but uh, definitely not to the degree that like a born and bred New Yorker has, but but you start to figure it out. It happens. Brian, same question to you, if you don't mind the lack of originality there. All good. Um, I have a fair amount of experience. I'm, I'm born and raised in New York. Um, I grew up in the city, but my mom's from Queens. My dad's from Mount Vernon. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I got to say, as like a New York kid, even in the five boroughs, the, there was a, there was some some stank on the Long Island and the, and the Jersey. I had yes. friends that would be in Long Island and they would always, but you know, I had a bunch of friends that would always be in the city and I'd be like, do you ever go home? And they're like, we hate it there. We gotta be in the city. <laughs> so I feel like I had a uh, experience of, of my friends who are now artists and live in New York or LA or, or wherever who are, who are kind of always jonesing uh, to get into the city proper and get, get away from their parents on Long Island. 
they eventually come back. I grew up on Long Island, hated it. Wound up coming back to this wonderful beach town called Long Beach, about 20 minutes from where you filmed a lot of the show. Uh, did everybody here, and this is a unison kind of question, did everybody get to film around Rockville Center in Lindbrook? Did we? <laughs> oh, yeah. We know the training grounds well. We do, we I do. I like to frame my picture at the Hampton Inn at Rockville Center. Honestly, I should be an honorary guest there. <laughs> Milo, Meg, in unison, how are you doing today? Amazing. <laughs> There you go. It's great. great speaking with both of you and congratulations on the continued franchise. Most things do not get a sequel, let alone a third movie, spin-offs, etc. So yeah. first, Milo, you, when did you kind of realize that this was more than just a one-off? You know, it I feel like that was a very gradual process. Um the first movie I I A, didn't think it was going to be nearly as big as it was. B, didn't think we were going to have a second movie. So to be able to have a third is just such a blessing. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the moment where I was like, is this like a thing? <laughs> was after the first movie came out and obviously we had crazy reaction to it. And they were like, how would you feel about a second one? And I was like, all right, if we're doing a second one, yeah. we got to do a third. And um, yeah, it's just there's so many moments like when me and Meg are performing at disney world for a thousand people it's moments like that where you're like oh this is real this yeah. has become a thing it's so you know it's one thing to think it and to know that you've done it but it's another thing to feel that truly and mm. it's just crazy to think that some young kid looks to me like i looked at uh zach efron on high school musical mm. you know what i mean mm. it's crazy right the same question goes at you and meg Keeping in mind that this is not your first successful long-term long -term kind of thing, American Housewives. I, I believe more than 100 episodes of American uh -huh. Housewives. That yeah. is rare syndication territory right there. <laughs> yes, yeah. So coming into this, when did you have the inkling of, oh, this is going to be the first or second credit that goes in the parentheses next to my name for a long time? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I it was always such a dream to audition for Disney Channel and I did audition it for Disney Channel since I was like eight. Um, so every time one came in, I was like, ah, um, especially a Disney Channel like musical, because mm -hmm. that's what like started everything is like I, it was always a dream to like be in a movie at the same time as like a musical, like a, you know, La La Land, if you will, or a high school mm -hmm. musical. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, when that opportunity presented itself with the amazing messages and the story of Zed Nadison, I was like, oh, and so then, oh, oh. and yes. then, <laughs> that, that and then, wasn't an Andrew Dice Clay, oh, for the record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then after we filmed the movie, it really, I mean, I was so happy with it, but it wasn't until like literally a week after it came out, when we did the Barnes and Noble signing, we oh, thought literally wow. three people were going to show up. And it was so many people Perhaps. knew all the songs already. And we were like, that was oh, crazy. that was like, those I feel one like of those moments. when the trajectory of my life kind of was like, oh, parentheses yeah. next to the name. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's also yeah. like, it's, it's such a weird concept for a movie, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. So I was yeah. like nervous. I was like, people aren't going to get it, whatever. But luckily they did. Yeah. So we're here now. And the last thing before I let you go, Milo, your credits also include 
American Housewife? Coincidence or friends in high places? Honestly, I owe it to zombies and to Meg for getting me on that show because I feel like I definitely would not have been on it if it wasn't for yeah. this. I was like, can you write on my one? Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Thanks for know. thanks for getting me on there. <laughs> And thanks Meg's, Meg's my new manager <laughs> yeah no um but that was an amazing uh experience as well I was only on it for a couple episodes but Meg obviously did a couple seasons which is a different <laughs> story but such a good time yeah. an amazing cast and yeah I thank Meg for that well congratulations on this coming out whether or not thank we you. get a prequel a, whatever we get <laughs> thank you so much amazing Aside from having to talk to media scum today, how's your day going? Media scum. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say media scum, but my day has been my day has been eventful. It's been okay. it's been a lot about talking about myself and the record, which is great. Um, but it's also been like surreal and reading the news and yeah. what's going on and being a little bit terrified. Yes, it, I find that the recurring thing in life is the good things keep getting better, the bad things keep getting worse, the smarter people keep getting smarter, the dumber people keep getting dumber. So we're consistently seeing the best of the best, the worst of the worst coexisting. Same yeah. age? Yes, 100%. Okay. 100%. And, and so the best music, yourself, uh, the best music keeps getting better. And we were connected to talk about sides, or do you prefer to call it S-I-D-E-S? No, definitely sides. Definitely, <laughs> definitely sides. Okay. <laughs> so, so sides is the first record in a few years, and it's got 15 tracks on it. Very active as a collaborator. To write 15 songs for an album, how many songs did you write in general? Quite a few. I mean, I'd say maybe around 40. 45. Wow. Okay, now I see two schools of thought with this. When an artist writes 40 songs and pairs it down to 15, some of them go, okay, well, there's a reason they didn't make the record and they're buried forever. Maybe a deluxe edition happens in 15 years and we see some demos there. Other people go, no, 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 I'm going to give these to other artists, uh, might make the next record, etc. What happens for you with those 25 floaters? Um, I think at some point I'll put them in an album again, or, or maybe they'll just be there for the next five years and then get used for an EP or a mixtape or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought about ever like giving a song away to another, another artist. I mean, it would be, it's a nice idea. I don't know if anyone would want to sing my songs that I write though. They're often very personal. Like often the reason why those ones don't get chosen for this album is that they're too personal hmm. in my opinion where I mean too personal is like that's exaggerating but it's the lyrics are kind of very focused on a certain person or a certain event um and I feel like anyone else singing that would be like what <laughs> Pro, pros and cons I, I have a friend who's written for a lot of other artists and out of the blue he got a call from his publisher going hey so the singer songwriter in Austria wants to take the song, translate it into the local language, make it a 50-50 publishing co-write, 
and it's his song, What Do You Say? So you never know when yeah. it's personal songs, other people it might resonate with. That's true. That is very true. Yeah. Okay. So in your case, though, 40 songs down to 15, we'll see what happens with all that. How long was this album done for? Because a lot of people held off stuff. They went, I don't want to want to release it within the first nine months of COVID because no yeah. one cares about new music. And so some of the people I interviewed, when I say, when was your album finished? They go February, 2020. Uh, in your case, when was it finished? Uh, my album was finished January, 2022. Wow. Okay. Now finished, including mastering? Including mastering February, 2022. Wow. Okay. So you're not one of those like last minute announce the album and then finish it people. <laughs> no, no. I announced the album when it was finished um, before. Yeah. So I finished it months before then announced it and then was like, okay putting it out so now being six months old do you still love the record or when you hear it do you go oh I would have done a few things differently and you look at the live show as evolving it I love the record I I look at it and um so some of the songs I'd written a year before um so like last January and and the the great thing is I have a lot of freedom when it comes to my label because I am my label and I right. also have an indie label and mom and pop in America. So I feel like they're very um, open and very relaxed when it comes to my wishes. Um, so I like to sit on songs for about a year to mm. see if I still like them wow. and then make the decision to put them on an album um, because I know I'll still like them and I still want to play them. That is super unique. Like the closest thing I've heard to that is the singer of Weezer who was managed by the head of mom and pop music. Uh, he focus groups his material. Now that's a little extreme. What do you mean? Focus group? What is, how does that, what does that mean? What was told to me by a producer who did a few albums with them was that he actually goes, here's the songs, which are your favorites? And he collects all that data, 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 however you want to say it, and goes, well, track two has to make the record because that tested very high. I'm not saying you do that, but it sounds like your approach is not too different from a comedian who like workshops their material in clubs before they can take it to the theaters. I mean, for me, it's just, I want to still like the songs years later. So I feel like if I like the song a year later after writing it, then that's already a good sign, you know? Then that's a sign that I, like imagine writing a song and then three weeks later being like, I can't hear the song anymore. And then you have to play it for the next 10 years because that's the song that blows up. And maybe that's great. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I'd want to be in those shoes. So I like to kind of just have that, that time to really understand if that song still resonates with me in a year, because then I think maybe it'll resonate with someone in a year's time too then after they heard it a year before, you know? I think if you were to do uh, sorry to make data the second time referenced in this conversation here, but I think if you were to do a rundown on all the Grammy Song of the Year winners, I think the majority of them were written or demoed in five to 10 minutes and the person went, meh. Like I know All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow is one of those. I think um, Someone Like You by Adele, I think that's a demo that we hear on the radio. It happens. Crazy. I, I mean, but I like, it can be a demo and I've had them, like I've written demos as well, but I still want to then listen to it for like right. a year 
to be like, yeah, this is, I, I still think this is a good song. So I absolutely agree. I think songs can be written in five minutes and be like, yeah, it's, it's either great or it's not. Yeah. But I think having the, the opportunity to keep listening to it years later um, and be like, yeah, I still think this is a really good song. That for me is a good sign. And I really enjoy that process. And going back to something you said a little earlier, you are your own label, Paper Plane Records, it's doing awesome. How much of that is by design? In other words, did you know at the beginning, hey, I want to control my own destiny? Or did you have a bunch of early music industry things where you went, that is not what I want? It was more the latter of um, wanting to get signed, realizing that it's very difficult to get signed, but still having enough confidence to be like, I want to put this out anyway. Um, and then being like, how do I do this? Okay, I'll start a record label. Um, so it was more like that and not wanting people to control. Everyone kept telling me like how they see the music. And I was like, well, I don't care how you see the music. This is how I see the music. Right. And um, I don't know if that's smart of, my, of myself to, to be so stubborn and um, to have my own kind of idea of what the music should sound like. But at the same time, I think like my name's on it. So I feel like I, I should know how it sounds like. Um, so yeah, it was more of like being like, fuck everyone. I'm just going to do my thing. And even in some interviews, like for this album, people be like, wow, 15 songs. Like that's unheard of nowadays. And I'm like, I wanted to write us like the 15 songs are all important to the story I'm telling on this album. Mm -hmm. Um, you're right. It, it may not be that like usual nowadays, but it's it's this album it's the storytelling I, I i didn't want to leave these important stories out um i get so it there's 15 songs on it. it yeah i don't know if it's smart to own your own masters in this day no that come on don't second guess that one for a second <laughs> i don't i mean look there's definitely i'd be lying if i'd say there's definitely moments where i wonder if it would be better to have a record label that's a little like a, a bigger one to kind of oversee right. everything and and um also with streaming nowadays being so big and like, we're, we're tiny, we're like a little ant, you know, um, compared to some of those big major labels out there. But at the same time, I know in my team, I've got people that are really fighting for my music right. and who really um, support my music. So I'm thankful for that. And I don't know if I've ever had that with any discussions of labels who, where I know that they would really fight for my music till the end. Well said. Uh when you are a musician who does a lot of interviews, early on you get the who are your influences, crappy questions and all that. I'm curious though, when it comes to being a label owner entrepreneur, who are your influences for that? Because I can think of a lot of great singer-songwriters, Ani DeFranco, uh, Amanda Palmer, Fugazi and that whole scene where they were able to put everything in their direction. In your case, did you have influences of the DIY thing? Not really. I'm going to be honest. Like I, there was never someone who I looked at as an artist where I was like, oh, they did the same thing. I can imagine there is some artists that did kind of put out their own uh, music on their own, on label, on, on like their own labels. Honestly, though, I don't know that many. Do you know that many? Uh, so Amanda Palmer, Ani DeFranco, but I, I think that we now see through 30 Tigers, all these people have their own venture deals, like Rachel Yamagata is yeah. somebody who does that. I would say 90% of the artists who are on a major label, 
more than three years ago are doing that thing. It's just, yeah. they're not, they're not really going, this is my own label. They're calling it an imprint and they're saying, well, it's the new Sony title because uh, Sony owns 30 Tigers or the Orchard, which owns that. So yeah, yeah. that's okay. my answer to that. But back to you here and your awesomeness. Um, how far ahead are things planned for you? Early into COVID, we saw people going, well, I had to cancel and reschedule my tour three times. I'm not planning anything. Uh, how far ahead are you looking? And you don't have to tell me your secret surprise plans, but do you know where you're going to be like a year from now? I don't know if we've given up with planning that far ahead yet. I feel like we can relate to everyone who's been like, we've had to re reschedule this three times. We're very much at a point where we're kind of like, we'll take it as it comes. We'll right. see how this album does. We'll see what happens with this music, with this album cycle. Um, we'll see if we go on a support tour. We went with Bastille for the past- Big tour. Two, yeah, two and a half wow. weeks um, we were, and that was kind of a surprise as well. Uh, we didn't know that was going to happen. We didn't know it was going to be possible. I literally got my U.S. visa the day before I left. I Mine ran out last year and getting a new one was a hassle. So I was only able to really take half of my band with me. Right. Um, and so there's just so much that's unknown at the moment and very difficult to plan. We're basically saying yes to anything that comes in. Um, we've been lucky that we were playing festivals this year that were uh, confirmed two years ago and that still want to have us play which is great um i'll be we'll be playing the new songs i'll be writing more music so i'm just kind of we're, we're cautious we're, we're going on tour hopefully in in the fall um yeah fingers crossed if everything goes okay but even with the war in ukraine and the whole rush like we've canceled four shows that were supposed to happen in russia and ukraine um which is awful if you think about that oh yeah to, See what's happening right now so the best of the best the worst of the worst it keeps happening it keeps happening and so we're all kind of at a point where we're just like just thankful for any opportunity we can get nowadays even with COVID happening and people wanting to still come to shows I mean selling tickets has been difficult like it's just one of those things where you're just hoping um, things will get better and you don't know so I hear you loud and clear. And the last question before I let you roam free has nothing to do with sides being awesome or what we talked about. It's uh, every time my wife and I start a new TV show, we finish it in three days. We, we need a new show or two to watch. Do you have a recommendation to pass along? My recommendation, have you seen Severance? Uh, no, is that on HBO? No, it's on Apple TV. Apple TV, Severance, okay. You have not seen Severance yet on Apple TV. It's a must-see, biggest cliffhanger of the year of the past decade. Um, amazing, amazing, amazing show. Cool. We will put that on the list. But in the meantime, best of luck. Hope to see you live in New York in the near future. And just keep up so everything you're doing. This this cottage industry career of being commercially acceptable yet critically acclaimed. Keep it up. Uh, is, if that's how it's perceived, then I'm, then I'm hoping that, then I'm hoping that it works out. I, I have, honestly, I have no idea how my music is perceived most of the time. So I'm just, I'm just like giving interviews being like, I, I think, well, I hope they like well, it. I'm not sure if they do. I'm not sure if it's, 
good, but there were radio two infatuation. They love you in Germany, Canada, the UK. Aren't those the countries that have the good taste in music that we then hope the NPR people here in the States pick up on? Well, the funny thing is, I mean, our our music got played in the US before it got played in the UK. Right. So I honestly have no idea. I just feel like I'm swimming in the middle of an ocean offering my songs, being like, does someone want it? And then someone random will raise their hand and be like, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, so that's kind of how I feel most of the time. Well, keep up that feeling. Thank you. I'll try. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Take care. Thank you, you too. First thing I'm gonna ask you besides how are you is, what should I call you, TR, Thunder Rosa? How do you like to be addressed? Mm -hmm. You can call me whatever you feel like calling me, okay. honestly. Well, how's your day going aside from having to talk to media? Um, well, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning. I haven't slept very much. My body's extremely sore. I have a, I had a championship match on Sunday. Yeah. And it was pretty, pretty cool. I was, I had a lot of fun and I was like, I was reminiscing on my time in Japan. So I, my body feels it right now. So it's been a hectic uh, 10 days and it's just getting more, more busier and busier, but I'm doing great. You not only had that great match, but you were also in the late night press conference afterwards, which was a very emotional, open interview that you kind of did. Did you know outright of, hey, we're going to tell the truth after the match? Did you know all that outright? No, it was funny because they told me like um, that I have the media scrum, like, I think it was as I was getting ready for my match. And then um, uh, I'm always very, try to be as, much, as sincere as possible in my interviews. Uh, and uh, it was, it was really cool. It was, um, I was very open and like they, my friends, they, they really enjoy what I had to say. And yeah, and they were making fun of my, my hat. Cause I always come with my cowboy hat to everywhere. <laughs> so, it's, but I, I love doing that. If you can pull off a cowboy hat, Hey, go for it. But uh, you know, to your credit here, so many projects going on. I mean, AEW, yes, Mission Pro, this Combate broadcasting gig, your YouTube channel is growing and growing and growing. People want to eat tacos with you. So I look at you as being this very successful, busy person, but this was not your career 10 years ago. No. So what you're doing now, how much of that is by design, like a goal step-by-step -step process? And how much of that is just organically fell into place? Um, well, everything was pretty organic. I was never like, I want to be a YouTuber and I want to be a uh, an entertainer and I want to be, well, the entertainer part, yeah, I wanted to be an entertainer, but it was never, that was never on my plan and my life plan. My life plan was to become a social worker or a family therapist and then, you know, be in debt for a long time before I was able <laughs> to have my own practice and then sure. uh, we'll see what happened. Um, but then once I discover professional wrestling and I noticed that there was an opportunity to use social media to actually make a living, um, that's when we started, you know, doing certain stuff and like just people started lining up on the right way. Mm -hmm. And I think in the last year, that's when um, I had a uh, YouTube channel already, but it was never, I never exploited that. And um, and um, my media editor, Tony Allen, he is, um, he's directing all my stuff right now. So he's the one who uh, suggested to start doing a bunch of stuff. 
And I was like, all right, cool. So I just pretty much create and he's the one who edits and distributes. So, uh, and he's just has very, uh, very same mindset. Uh, my husband always was telling me that I needed to do it, but I was like, are you going to edit it? And he's like, no, because I, I don't know how to do it. Then I was like, well, it's going to take us a little while. So right. we, like I said, we did it, but we didn't get the numbers that we wanted. And now it's like, because of what the platform that I am into, it's, it, it helps a lot. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because not only I have YouTube, we're making money with Instagram. Uh, I have a website yeah. uh, where you can see content. Um, oh my God. I don't know. Like we have so many things that we're working on and it's really cool. You're doing all that while staying in excellent shape and people are expecting new makeup and new outfits from you pretty much every single match. So it's incredible that you get all of that done without being crazed in person. You always have a very cool demeanor to yourself, you know, in public. So what I was curious about is your to-do list. Are you a big to-do list checklist kind of person to be able to get all that done? Or are you able to delegate at this point? I mean, I was, but now it's like literally like this week I have a to-do list. Like uh, usually is my, uh, my editor sends me what I have to get, get to him and I have to make sure I get it done. I have a bunch of stuff that I have to do for Combat the Global yeah. uh, that I have to get done this week. And then it's just everything just piled up. Like on Thursday, I have to go to the embassy for Japan to get my, my visa, all the stuff to like get that. Uh, and then like, um, I gotta, then the next couple of days I have to order a bunch of stuff or a couple of trips I have. So it's like always depending on what it is. And I always have like the, the to-do list that never ends <laughs> right. that you have been working on forever, but that's in my head. I, uh, but like a couple months I had, and I was getting very stressed because I was like, Oh my God, I'm not, I'm, I'm not finished. But, um, but yeah, I tried to like, uh, prioritize the things that, uh, have a timeline. And then, um, and the ones that I don't, I just work as, as, as I go pretty much. And Combate is who connected us to speak. You're doing commentary July 15th and 22nd. Yes. For you to do commentary or play-by-play -play or anything like that, is there a lot of prep needed, a lot of research, or are you able to just talk it out and read the vibes in the room? Well, you know, I'm a color, color commentator, so I can just, you know, use my knowledge or the lack of <laughs> to like, make jokes. Well, hey, you are an editor, so you you do have a lot of knowledge to your credit. Absolutely. But it's just like when you don't, you kind of like use other, you know, terminology from other sports just to kind of like save your butt. But on this one, I'm definitely in the next, probably uh, in my next trips, I'm going to be reading a lot more about our about our fighters like the ones that i'm most interested as you know is the women's fighters because as as you know uh combat the global they're always pushing women they mm -hmm. have the one night when there's nothing but women uh fights and um over uh third quarters of the, the roster is women so it's 160 right. fighters so and they give them such a great platform that not no other place does um and especially in Latin America. So um, for them to like have reach out and ask me to be color commentator, it's, it's, it's a big deal. You know, I mean, I only had one MMA fight with them, but because of like what I've been doing with professional wrestling, it really like brings another flavor to the commentators. For sure. And 
is all of your commentary going to be in Spanish or Spanish and English? Do you go between? No, actually it's going to be in English, which is uh, very interesting because it's in a way it's better because I uh, a lot of the moves and a lot of the strikes and everything, I know them in English, not in Spanish because everything was taught to me in English. And we're going to be on Paramount Plus um, both days. Then how's your Japanese? Because you've done a lot of tours over there, English and Spanish, Okay, similar words there. Spanish you know and Japanese have I, similar vowels, but I speak, Span I speak Spanish in Japan. Wow! I get a, yeah, a lot of the Japanese um, workers they they went to Mexico. They trained there for one or two years, and their English. I mean, the Spanish is completely fluid. Like I was talking to one of them today. Yeah, not today. It's Sunday, and I went and said something in. Uh, uh, in Spanish and then he started striking a conversation in Spanish and I was like wow yeah he's like yeah I work in CMLL for like two years and then I said like a bad word in Spanish and he totally laughed because he know what I was talking about so um, yeah usually you speak Spanish but if not it's like uh, I have my my words like you know my greetings or when I say excuse me yeah. uh, the bathroom <laughs> food when I'm hungry they know uh, and then I use body language but you can use body language and commentary. So uh, I know that Max Bretos and uh, Rodolfo Roman are going to be like, okay, Thunder, you can't be doing hand signs because I can't see this. <laughs> right on with that. Now, three quick questions and then I'm going to let you go because let's face it, you're tired and the world still has to speak to you and the people want to speak. <laughs> the, the, the first question is, obviously your makeup, the it's it's one of the signatures of what you do and one of the reasons why people endlessly talk about you has mm -hmm. there have there been any discussions about you having your own skincare or makeup line oh that's a great great question i don't want to spoil it i don't know because i might be working on it i don't know maybe in the future fingers crossed well i mean I know. the band kiss I don't think that it, they've had one, but today the band Def Leppard announced that they have a makeup line. So you got to figure, hey, who better than you? They t it took them 30 years to get it? <laughs> Basically. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Like I said, I would like, I definitely would like to do something like that. I know there's a lot of artists and like a lot of singers that they have their own skin line uh, and like uh, cosmetics and stuff. So I think it's, I mean, Whatever you can make profit, and as long as it's good and it's a good product and it's affordable for people, I think people can support it very well. Next question I got for you. Great theme song that you've got coming to the ring. It's death metal of genre-wise. Who came up with the theme song? Rokis. Uh, he asked me, like, so what do you have? What do you like? Well, you know, it's like, I like Panthera, you know. Um, Metallica from time to time just you know he pumps me up I think it I told him what song it was that I liked and then he just come up with something and then I had another song that I, actually the group Thunder Rosa from Austin created for me with like drums and stuff and then he just come up with that and it's just every time I come up with that song everybody feels like I'm about to go and kill somebody I never knew you were a Pantera fan. Did you ever get to see Pantera damage? No, 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 no. I just recently started to like to actually listen to them because a lot of my friends do. And they're like, oh, you should listen to this. You should listen to this uh, album. This is great. And then they start telling me when they went to like the concerts and stuff. And I was like, all right, all right, let me listen to it. And then I started reading the lyrics because sometimes I don't understand still. Uh, and I was like, oh, this music, it's actually very deep and really good. So yeah, absolutely. 
And the last question I have for you, besides your YouTube channel, besides mm -hmm. AEW, besides Combate Global, do you have a TV recommendation that you could pass along? My, my wife and I, every time we find a new show, we finish it in three, four days and we go, what do we watch next? Well, what does Thunder Rosa think that we should be watching on television? If you are not watching, or you don't, haven't watched The Mandalorian or any of the Star Wars and you don't like Star Wars, you're, you know, missing it. I am watching right now Kenobi. I love it. it was, I, yesterday I was so mad because I was paying bills and my husband was like, are you going to watch this? I was like, I don't think so. So let me wait. I really like it. I like, uh, I just, I just love what they're doing with, with the series. Yeah, I hear you. Well, speaking of series is looking forward to who you eat tacos with next great recommendations that you're giving the world as to the best taco places. So whatever it is, whether it's in the ring, on the mic, on the YouTube, looking forward to what's coming from you soon. Well, thank you. And don't forget, I will be at Combate Global on uh, July, like you said, 15 and 22nd on Paramount Plus. Uh, you can also catch this on Univision and Espanol Live. So check it out. Like uh, it's MMA is growing and in Latin America, it's picking up and all our fighters need all the support that they, uh, that they can. So come and watch it. Outrocast.